Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we take on some blanket tax advice and also go on a rant that leads us to pizza. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, I missed you last week. It's good to see you back. It's good to be back. I missed you. I missed talking to all our listeners, but it was some much needed rest for me. I I was definitely under the weather and I was especially sorry to miss chatting with my old friend, Sean, but it was great to hear his voice regardless. Absolutely. I'm I'm so glad that he was able to come on and uh, share just I mean, his creativity is just incredible in terms of how he thinks through his finances. And obviously, um, anybody that listened to that show knows he's kind of made some choices that maybe I don't know that I would make personally, but I really respect them. And uh, it, w- it was great to have him on and, and get to catch up a little bit. So very excited for him and kind of this next chapter that that he's entering. Um, so if folks haven't listened to that, please make sure you do check that out. We're starting this week with a bit of a rant. Uh, and and I think we've got a couple rant items to get into, but this really came to me through, uh, I believe the guy's name is Ron Carruthers, who I saw on Instagram, and he seems to be uh, a very tax-focused sort of guy. And his bit that I keep seeing and objecting to is basically that your pre-tax 401k sucks. So Dan, does the pre-tax 401k suck? Honestly, I think it depends how you look at it. So to read the the tweet, you sent me this, I think, on Instagram midnight one night, which tells you what my relationship with Ross is like. But <laughs> but basically, it's Ron Carruthers saying, your traditional 401k sucks. Roth 401ks are fine, but at least you get a match. Your traditional IRA sucks worse. No match. That's it. That's the tweet. Have a great weekend. That is what Ron says. So I took issue with this for for multiple reasons. Number one, anybody that says something so definitively, I like immediately want to poke holes in it. That is just my nature. Like if you come out and you say, this is the thing, this is good, this is horrible. There's no case in which this makes sense. I'm immediately upset by it. That is my biggest pet peeve with financial media and particularly with pundits, you know, the Dave Ramseys, the Susie Ormans of the world, who I think have things to offer and good things to say, but they take a very firm stand and that makes them good broadcasters and it makes them good personalities because they come across as very opinionated and uh, and very forceful in those opinions because they say them so definitively. It ignores all the nuance and, and that's what we're trying to do with our show is present some of that nuance. So uh, I think today what we wanted to get into is a little bit of a discussion around what is that nuance really like? You know, is this a vehicle that we could take a, a, a pot shot at and say your pre-tax 401k or or even your pre-tax IRA in general is not a good vehicle and and try and break that down and, and just pull it apart a little bit? Why don't we start with where he's right? Because I think there is some truth to what he's saying. 
the 401k is a vehicle that people rely very heavily on, but might not appreciate that there are some things they're missing out on because of it. I think that's correct. And you and I see a lot in the planning work that we do with clients an over-reliance on pre-tax vehicles. And the way that that presents typically is if you're looking at kind of your asset mixture, uh, there's three main buckets that we think of that you can have money in. You can have money in pre-tax vehicles. That's your traditional IRA. That's your pre-tax 401k. You can have it in what we call taxable or uh, kind of you know ordinary buckets, things like your savings account, a regular brokerage account where you're going to pay capital gains or, or taxes on dividends along the way. But ultimately, you have access to that money all the way through. And then finally, Roth, which we all love Roth. It's a little bit more difficult to get money into. We've done shows specifically on it. But those three buckets, pre-tax, taxable, Roth, is how we're going to talk about them today. And to make a stand against pre-tax, it's not that it's bad. It's just that if it's the only thing you have, it starts to create problems. The problems it creates, number one, is ultimately RMDs, required minimum distributions. Now, if you're in your 30s and listening to this, uh, you may be thinking, why am I worried about a tax problem at age 72? And that's fair. That is that is future use problem. But required minimum distributions are an issue that we look at and we project forward and try and look at, are they going to be really big? Is it going to force money out of your accounts? And is it going to force money out at a rate that is likely to bump you into like the next tax bracket? Because that's, that's what we see a lot. And then number two is flexibility. If all of your money is pre-tax, every dollar you take out is essentially an additional tax liability. And you just you get you can get yourself into a spot where if you had a big cash flow need, if you wanted to buy a new car, for example, and not finance it, well, you're going to have to take quite a bit out in order to do that. And each additional dollar out, again, is going to kind of compound that tax problem or could bump you into another tax bracket. So th- those are kind of the the main downsides that we see. Right. So to put numbers to that example, if you're retired and all of your money is in your pre-tax 401k or pre-tax IRA, and you're eyeing a $30,000 new car, well, that car is really going to be $40,000 for you because that's what you'll need to remove from your account in order to cover that tax bill. The other thing with 401ks as well in particular is you have a very limited universe of investment options. And if you're saving into that 401k aggressively, and perhaps doing that in lieu of other savings, you may miss opportunities to invest in different kinds of vehicles. You may not have the capital to pursue an exciting opportunity when it comes up, or if you want to invest in real estate or something like that, you're just not going to have enough capital outside of that plan to do things like that. So you know that's an opportunity cost as well of investing in a 401k versus saving outside and remaining flexible and nimble. So that's where he's right. I think the other thing that he's making a case on, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, I believe that he generally expects tax rates to go up. Now, that is a very common sentiment I hear, both among investors. That's a very easy way to scare people if you're talking about taxes. And if you're a proponent of Roth vehicles, that's an exceptionally easy case to make. The the two cases for Roth is, number one, you've got to have an opinion on where your income is going to be. And number two, you got to have an opinion on where tax rates are going. 
And when you look at the deficit, when you look at you know how much our government essentially needs to raise in terms of cash, it's it again, a lot of people believe those tax rates are going to go up. My question or my counterpoint is always, are they going to go up on who? Uh, because I think most of the proposals I see are targeting the very top earners and and then some, right? Like you're almost getting hyper targeted towards the billionaire class at this point in terms of what they're trying to do. I see that they're trying to take ordinary Americans at like a you know twenty two percent tax rate. Like nobody's even talking about raising taxes on folks at those income levels. It's just so incredibly unpopular. And so you know if you're listening to this and you're making an exceptionally high income and it, and it and you're you're a high earner then maybe right that then maybe you're going to be facing tax rate increases if you're in a 22 24% tax bracket um kind of at the you know national average ranges uh, i don't think so i i just don't think that you're going to see this incredible increase to to tax rates Maybe I'm wrong there. I, I'm willing to be wrong there, but but I do believe that's another piece that he's adding into his thesis. And I think it's worth thinking about. The other thing is tax rates don't have to go up, but there are a lot of tax provisions that could go away that might effectively increase your tax as well. We're looking at a pretty high standard deduction across the board for everyone. That could change. If you're a self-employed individual right now, today, you are benefiting perhaps from something called a qualified business income deduction, which essentially lops 20% off of your business income from taxes, that could go away. So there are a lot of things to think about that I think could realistically increase your tax liability over time without anyone having to actually say these tax rates are going to change, the tax brackets are going to change. I think that's a fair point as well. Okay. So what do we like about the pre-tax 401k uh, and, and even the, the IRA? And I, I kind of did this more so thinking about 401ks than, than IRAs, but, but I think it's accurate to think of both. Number one, particularly on the 401k side, uh, we like that 401ks get ERISA protection. Um, so for anybody that is potentially going through a bankruptcy or, or has any sort of you know, risk of financial harm in, in their life, the ERISA protection, uh, that's a Department of Labor law, is very strong. And you get better protection there than you get on other personal assets where creditors can come after them pretty easily. That's number one. But probably the biggest thing is just the automated savings. We know that the average American has a lot of trouble putting away enough cash. The statistics that we see are constantly shocking of how many people can't you know, scrounge up a thousand bucks if they needed to for an emergency. So the fact that you're getting automated, not thinking about it, you know, dollar cost averaging style savings into a plan where you can just set it on autopilot is always a positive. And I think that that's part of why people end up with so much money in these plans is simply that they've been able to do it and not think about it. So I think that that's always an incredible benefit. And I tend to over index to behavioral issues. And so if I can fix the behavior, and create the right behavior without thinking about it, that tends to be the space that I'm happiest, even if it's not optimized uh, for, for, for clients, because that tends to be what I prioritize. I 100% agree. And that behavioral benefit works on both sides. So it's easy to get money into the plan, and it's hard to get money out of the plan. 
if I were saving separately, it could be so easy and tempting to essentially rob from myself when I see an opportunity to do so. Maybe I want to buy something and I see I have all this money here that I've been saving or investing. And you know, it wouldn't hurt if I took a little bit of that money to, to take myself on a trip or something. Uh, that's much harder to do with a 401k, both administratively and they hit you with taxes and penalties on the way out, which makes you think twice about it. So we also wanted to compare the math a little bit. And I think that this was um, an interesting example. Uh, so we, we tried to just take a look at mathematically, if you didn't assume a huge shift in tax rates, how big is the difference? Um, and so to do this, what, what we assumed just over a 20-year period, somebody saving $10,000 a year into a pre-tax vehicle. Um, so $10,000, 20 years. So that means a total that they're putting in of $200,000 over that over that 20-year period. If that portfolio consistently gains 7% a year, and again, I'm, I'm making a, a few leaps here just to, to take some of the timing and, and all of this stuff and all the variability out of it. Um, at 7% a year, you would end up with $438,652 over the course of a 20-year period in the pre-tax 401k. All of that money is pre-tax. If it's coming out at a 22% tax rate, that would mean that the implied net wealth, so I'm taking what you would get after paying the taxes, I'm also ignoring income taxes at the state level here, I'm just doing a flat 22%. You'd have 342148 as the post-tax number, assuming that you got that money out all at 22%. So again, two hundred thousand in grows to four thirty eight six hundred three forty two is the net wealth that we can assume you'd get after taking out the implied tax liability. On the other side, we looked at saving seventy eight hundred a month, or excuse me, seventy eight hundred a year. And the reason there is that on the contributions to the pre tax account, you are getting the tax deduction. You're getting the reduced taxes in the year you make the contribution. And so in theory, if you can save 10000 pre-tax, you would only be able to save 7800 after tax from the same cash flow and kind of not feel that bite. So in that situation, over the 20 years, you save a total of $156,000. That grows at the same 7% annually. That creates 342148 in the account. So that's a total gain of about $186,000, on which the implied tax is 27922 So for the same, kind of trying to get these as apples to apples, in the 401k, your net wealth is 342148 And in the taxable account, it's 314226 using the same rate of return, and that's simply because you've got more capital in the pre-tax account that is compounding. And the difference between the 15% capital gain rate and the 22% income rate does not overcome there. The, the pre-tax account wins in that example. So I, th I actually like that example because it tells a good story. If we're assuming there's no change in tax code over those two decades... There is a compelling case to be made for saving in a pre-tax 401k versus after-tax. I, I, clearly, I think you should be doing both for tax diversification. 
but it, it is not a trash vehicle. There is material benefit to saving money pre-tax in the form of compounding. Yeah. Now, where it changes, obviously, we've talked a lot about the flexibility uh, in terms of having access to that brokerage account. Uh, we also believe that the brokerage account in many cases is going to open up more interesting investment vehicles, right? You may have choices there that you wouldn't have had in the pre-tax 401k. Um, and and we, we believe in having both. But if you didn't assume that tax difference, it's not a an open and shut case. Now, again, I think if you did this same calculation at really high income tax rates, if we were talking about 35, 37%, uh, I think it's a meaningful difference, uh, and I believe that the after-tax account or the brokerage account is going to look much more attractive because you've just got a much bigger delta, a, a much bigger difference between the income tax rate and the capital gain rate that you're going to be paying. A couple of things I want to make sure we touch on as well. Uh, we kind of hinted at this at the beginning of the segment, but 401ks offer matching money. It's It's foolish to give away free money. So Regardless of your thoughts on the 401k, you know, consider taking your employer's money as a gift. Yeah, I, I don't think there's ever a case in which I would say forego the match. I mean, un, un, unless you're dealing with just a really extreme debt hole. And even then, I, I would do almost anything I could to maintain the match. So, yeah, I, I think certainly to the point that you can get free money, uh, do that. Because that that's important, and it's uh, it's unlikely that your gains in the account will ever be enough outside of the four hundred one k to overcome giving up a match. The other thing that's a little more nuanced and, and in the weeds is Ross mentioned he wasn't really factoring in state taxes into the equation, just for the simplicity of forecasting. States treat money from retirement plans differently than regular income sometimes. So if you're in a state that does that, you know, there could be a tax savings there that you otherwise wouldn't have if you have money in a 401k versus an after-tax brokerage. Yeah, I mean the other thing is I'm only looking at the income tax rate. I I didn't look at any of the FICA rates, right? I mean that that also comes out of this, so that would make it a stronger argument for the pre-tax, honestly, because that money is going to come out as earned income uh, or you're you're going to be reducing your earned income in the year that you earn it. And when it comes back out, yes, it's taxable income, but it's not taxable as wages. Um, so, so you're going to be getting rid of the FICA. I think that continues to strengthen the, the pre-tax 401k argument. Yeah. So Ron Carruthers, not a cut and dry case. As with everything financial planning, you need to look at this on an individual basis. Don't follow a single mantra and you know take it to the grave with you. You should dive a little deeper. All right, Dan, we had one more rant item before we wrap up for today. Go for it. We did. So stock splits have been in the news lately a lot. Some of these mega companies have announced that they are splitting. They have really high dollar priced shares. And every time stock splits are announced, they are received with a lot of excitement among everyday investors. A lot of fanfare for a stock split. A lot of fanfare. And to me, it's it's nonsense, right? This is a non-event. It doesn't change anything to have to do with the business or how much of the company you own. It just changes the quantity of shares and the share price. Uh, And then that also got me kind of to the next level of my tangent. Throughout my entire life, 
as I've been talking with people about investing and they're talking about stock ideas or have I seen anything lately, invariably we'll mention a company that has one of these high share prices, like maybe a stock is trading for $500 and they will tell me, no, no, that's that's too expensive a company to, to buy. Do you know anything $20 or less? Again, nonsense. That stock price is meaningless as it relates to how the company is going to perform and how your rates of returns will do. Expensive versus cheap is not measured in the dollar value of the share price. It's all relative. Yeah. I mean, the the number of times that we've had this discussion with folks, and I'm not sure if we do a bad job of explaining it or if it's just a strange concept. But people seem to really anchor to the number of shares they have. And so like the, the example I like to give people is picture a slice of pizza that you've got from your favorite pizza shop. If I take a pizza cutter to that slice of pizza and I chop it into 10 pieces, the same piece of pizza, do you have more or less pizza? Well, of course, I have more pizza. You do I have not. More. <laughs> you have the exact same amount of pizza. You simply have it cut into little bites, right? Like, that's how we think about this. I don't know how we can make that example any any cleaner for people. Because people are like, well, I'd still rather have 10 pieces of pizza. And you're like, no, you don't understand. We've taken the same piece of pizza and simply cut it smaller. And that is what a stock split is doing. It has no impact. And what you should ultimately be focused on is the dollars you have invested. Now, for somebody that is a brand new investor or just starting out, sure, $500, $1,000, $3,000 stock price like we see on some of the big Hallmark companies. That can be difficult if you're a brand new investor. If you've put your first 1000 bucks into a brokerage account, can you go buy a $3,000 share? No, you cannot. Right. So a stock split is meaningful in those contexts, the other thing that we're seeing a lot more of uh, that I think Robinhood has really, uh, as much as I dislike them uh, in many ways, but Robinhood has sort of pioneered and been a proponent for is uh, fractional shares or slices. You can buy less than one whole share of some of these companies. Uh, and other brokers have followed on with that. So you're seeing that now. But in that example, that's, that's where the share price is really meaningful. But once you've built some capital, whether you own one share of a company at fifteen hundred bucks or fifteen shares of a company at a hundred dollars a piece, should be completely irrelevant to you. It is how much of your capital, what percentage of your portfolio do you have invested in that business? That's what matters. Your one share growing at ten percent is the same as your fifteen shares growing at ten percent. I do like the pizza example. Because I think it also captures the convenience of a lower share price. Maybe someone doesn't want a big slice of pizza and they want to eat a mini slice of pizza because they're a squirrel. And, uh, you know, it's convenient to grab the smaller one, but it's the same as eating a smaller piece of a, a big slice. I don't know who would want to eat a small slice of pizza is, is what I'm getting at, Ross. I'm, I'm a hard pass on the small slice of pizza. I would like a a healthy adult sized slice of pizza thank you don't don't cut my pizza down any further agreed all right folks well that's it for i guess what we're going to call our rant episode this week we're we're just going to like make fun of stuff that's going on out there in the financial media uh stock splits and poor takes on 
tax rates. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address for our show. If you've got questions for us, financial planning, conundrums, things that you want me and Dan to weigh in on, we'd love to hear from you. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.